Um, so I'll, I'll just start off quickly. Uh, so I just want to kind of, you know, thank everyone for being here um, in the first place. Uh, this is our FOMIC space for December 13th. Um, it's being recorded. Uh, so uh, we want to kind of welcome everyone to our last FOMIC space of the year. Our first space actually was back in July um, with uh, Chem and Joseph. And last bear may have been there too. Um, uh, so I'm kind of super excited to, to ring in the holidays with, with this uh, space, our final one. I'm Unusual Wales. And we're super happy to discuss FOMEC, the Fed, inflation, uh, with many of these experts here. Uh, Nicholas will be conducting the discussion today, so let's begin. How's it going, everybody? Just like Whale, I am excited for this one, last one of the year. And as always, I'm excited to have all of these speakers and experts here to go over the market horizons with us a little bit. So I'm just going to go ahead and do a quick interview of each of our speakers today. Looks like we got Joseph up here as well now. So hell yeah, we're good to go. So I'm going to start off just quick introduction of our speakers. If any of you folks have anything to plug or share fees, feel free to do so. You could even share it to the nest above or send me a DM with the link to it and I'll put it in the nest above. Starting us off, we've got Fed Guy 12, our man Joseph Wang, a friend of our Twitter spaces, welcoming him back again. He headed trading at the Fed's Open Desk, has an incredible book called Central Banking 101, and is always our go-to guy to speak about the Fed's operations. How are you doing today, Joseph? I am doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. And I also want to congratulate Unusual Wells for reaching the 1 million follower mark. You guys put out great content and done a great job in exposing all the trading activities of our elected leaders. So it's well-deserved, well-earned. Congratulations. Appreciate that, Dr. Joseph. Thank you so much. And, uh, of course, full cred to Whale up here doing all of the nitty-gritty work on that. Thanks for coming, Joseph. Up next, we've got... The incumbent Jam Croissant of FinTwit, Jam Carson, a volatility expert, the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should be subscribed to, and an incredibly passionate educator in the options vol and flow space. And great guy all around, honestly. Welcome, Jim. Hey, guys. Great being here. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, last one of the year. Uh, should, be, should be getting interesting here as we turn, uh, turn the page to the next calendar here. Absolutely. And then interesting, it's just going to keep getting more and more interesting, I think. Thank you, Jim. Up next, we've got Michael Cow, the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of Cow Family Office. Having worked previously at Acanthos Capital Management, he's an expert on commodities, index arbitrage, and dynamic hedging. Welcome, Michael, the cowboy himself. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to be here to, to learn and to, and to share knowledge. Thanks. Thanks for being here, Michael. Up next, Lynn Alden, the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy and a sharp macro mind that discusses all things from crypto to inflation to the Fed itself. We're excited to have her for her first unusual whale space. Thanks, Lynn. How are you doing today? I'm good. Happy to be here. Uh, good company. Excited for this. I'm excited, too. Thank you much for coming, Lynn. The last bear standing, another recurring friend of the spaces, Last Bear, is an expert on numerous things, as well as the proprietor of an incredible newsletter that, dis that details the subtleties often forgotten in macro. If you're not subscribed, please do that. Welcome back, Last Bear Standing. Thanks, guys. Thanks for including me on this fantastic panel here today. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, and if you like anything that I have to say, you can follow me 
here on Twitter or uh, subscribe to my Substack. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you, Last Bear. So with those introductions out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and get right into this. Let's get a quick summary of where we are macro-wise since the last FOMC. We've seen a 7.1% CPI in November, better than expected job market, a small resurgence for the dollar since late October, an inverted yield curve with strong GDP. Lynn, since this is your first time on the space, I would love for you to describe what the Fed is thinking right now and how it's looking at things from your perspective. Well, so overall, they're using the tools they have available, uh, which are mostly about the demand side, not the supply side. Um, so, for example, they can address various energy shortages. They can address certain supply chain things. Some of those have alleviated. Uh, but what they can do is, is slow down the demand side by restricting access to um, credit um, and overall trying to just put more pressure on the labor market, trying to put more pressure on um, money creation um, and to, to, you know, basically give supply time to catch up. Um, there are some challenges with that approach because, for example, if the cost of capital rises for some of those supply producers, uh, then sometimes it can have a counterintuitive effect uh, of, of really not, you know, allowing supply to increase the rate it otherwise would have. Um, but it's part of their mandate. So they are, you know, the, these are the tools available to them. So there's those are the tools they're using. And so essentially what we're seeing is that so far uh, some of their tools are working, right? So we see a declining purchasing managers index, declining freight index, declining shipping volumes, uh, declining uh, business confidence, declining consumer confidence, all from the highs that they reached uh, over the past couple of years. Um, and so the question is how long are they willing to, you know, keep pushing it? How hard are they willing to keep pushing it? Um, and, you know, to what extent or over what timeline some of this economic deceleration could could trigger an outright recession, right? So right now, for example, the, the, the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index and Freight and things like that, they're not in outright recessionary conditions yet. They're, they're in kind of the phase where, you know, you're maybe the, maybe the weak part of an economic expansion, um, but they can easily keep going down and, and result in a recession. And so far, the, the strongest indicator we have for a potential recession is the inverted yield curve. So if you look at the 10-year minus three-month uh, yield curve, that's, that's the most accurate one. That's the one where there's, you know, the most published literature on and it's accurately predicted the past eight recessions uh, with no misses or false positives. So they must be looking at that. Um, but I'm sure that that Joseph, um, you know, has much more insight than I do about what the Fed's specifically thinking. I'm more about analyzing, you know, the macro economy, um, and he's more of a Fed expert. Thank you much, Lynn. So I am actually going to spin to Joseph here. Last year, this time, when people were talking about 7.1% inflation, they assumed it meant the worst. Well, now the market seems to welcome the 7.1%, given that downward rate of change and demand changes. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Joseph, on how the Fed sees the difference contextually and what our thoughts are on inflation from a high level, as well as what Lynn has said to what the Fed is thinking. Great. I, I agree with Lynn's summary. It's a great summary of what's happening right now. So I guess I'll level set as to what I'm focusing on, how I think the Fed is looking at this. So, of course, today we're going to hike by 50 basis points. The Fed has a principle. It doesn't like to surprise the market. And 
Chair Powell has already strongly suggested at his speech a couple weeks ago that they're going to slow down to 50 basis points. Now, the thing is that right now there's a wide divergence, well, a widening divergence between what the market is pricing for what the Fed will do next year and what the Fed has been telling what the market will do, uh, telling the market what it will do next year. So the market is thinking that uh, we're probably going to get to, let's say, four and a quarter, and then the Fed will start pretty cutting pretty rapidly uh, next year and the year after. Um, the Fed, through its September dot plot, has told the market that it's going to hike and then keep it higher for longer. Chair Powell has hinted in his last speech that he thinks the September dot plots are a little bit low and the dot plots that he's going to announce today are going to be higher. So what that means to me is that the market and the Fed are, are, are on different tracks. And part of that has to do with the macroeconomy, as um, Nick and Lynn suggested. The market seems to look at uh, the prospect of potential inflation and then decelerating CPI and thinks the Fed is just going to start cutting rates quickly and so forth. The Fed is, I think, is going to be looking at this a little bit differently. And as far as the markets and the Fed are concerned, I think the Fed is probably going to be more correct this time. Now, just for some context, the market has a very, very bad track record of predicting the Fed. Uh, Post-GFC, the market was always thinking the Fed was going to hike rates. And uh, recently, the market is always thinking that the Fed is going to cut rates. So I think that the Fed is going to um, act differently from what the Fed from the market suggests, because I think from the Fed's perspective, they don't think that inflation is going to decelerate as quickly. A big part of why inflation is coming, is continuing to remain high, is because of services inflation. And the biggest component to services inflation is, the biggest component to services inflation is wages. And wages continue to remain very strong. Um, so that means the Fed really can't, can't suddenly loosen. Um, another way to think about this from the Fed's perspective is that there's tremendous asymmetry here between the risks of tightening too much and tightening too little. Now, you don't want to do either, but if you're the Fed, from their perspective, if you tighten too much and you do actually cause a recession, you can quickly cut rates and everything will be better. But if you tighten too less, then you run the risk that inflation gets out of control, if that's the case. Um, then you're going to have to tighten a whole lot, and the recession, when it comes, is going to be that much worse. So in order to manage this asymmetry, the Fed has to err on the side of being a little bit more hawkish. But that does not mean that the Fed is going to hike, um, let's say, much higher. Another way they can become more hawkish, and this is what Chair Powell suggested a couple of weeks ago, is to hold their policy for longer than the market expects. So higher for longer, as they say. And because that's the framework they're approaching it, um, I'm thinking that um, the Fed will probably try to hammer home that message that they're not going to be cutting rates anytime soon, um, regardless of the positive trajectory we see in CPI. Thank you, Joseph. And thanks for also highlighting how the market is pricing things in and the divergence they're in. And so it looks like we did lose Lynn Alden there to some technical difficulties. We will try to get her back up here as well. In the meantime, last bear, you wrote a great piece in your Substack regarding a peak in the rally. I'm just real quick going to quote a bit from that to give context. And then I would love to have your thoughts. So the quote the market is nervously shifting its weight from the right foot to the left foot, 
as it considers inflation and a tightening Fed, a potential recession that hasn't arrived yet, and surprisingly durable growth in the meantime. Celeste Baer, where is the market right now given inflation? And I'd love your response to what Joseph said so far. Yeah, so I think the, the post that I put out last week, which, by the way, is always risky to put out sort of a, a directional post in the week before CPI and, and a Fed meeting and, and whatnot. But um, sort of the, the idea that I was alluding to there is um, more sort of a feel for the market in terms of how it's been undulating back and forth over the past year. And to me, it felt, um, you know, the conditions felt very similar to what we saw in the middle of August and maybe late March, where you had a, a bid in stocks and a bid in longer duration fixed income, you know, treasuries, uh, reduction in volatility across um, certainly equities, but but other asset classes as well. Um, and I didn't see that there was a whole lot sort of on a, on a big picture scale that would necessarily justify that other than, you know, sort of how I, uh, how I described it as, you know, natural overextension in one way and then sort of overextension in the other. Um, and so the thought behind the piece was, was really just that by a lot of those metrics, especially thinking about what, uh, what Joe, uh, Joseph was referring to about the divergence between the Fed, um, you know, what the, what the Fed is saying on rates and where the market is now pricing uh, rate cuts that, you know, particularly in that sense, the market seemed overextended, over pot, you know, overly optimistic, I guess, depending on your perspective, uh, you know, on the rate of um, rate cuts going forward, and that that was likely to sort of, you know, that the Fed was likely to pour water on that, or the market itself would sort of readjust to have a more aligned approach to what I think the Fed really wants to message over the coming months. Thank you, Last Bear. So now before we get into more of the macro, Jim, I'd love to get your outlook on the VIX the last two months and what's going on in the vol world. A lot of people saw VIX rally this week and kind of expected it to continue. Of course, the VIX is a different beast, though, and it's funny to think that the VIX hit its year-to-date high back in January of this year with the vault kind of near all-time lows given what we saw during the year i would love your thoughts jim on the volatility conditions currently yeah i mean look this is uh i hate using the word seasonality because what people think seasonality means is not what seasonality means uh we are in a period structurally where um you have massive underlying flows uh that that underpin the market uh in a, in a con- in the context of low liquidity and liquidity is incredibly low. This is what we've seen the last two CPI prints. Uh, we've seen uh, really outsized moves uh, due to that lack of uh, liquidity. I think yesterday was a was a perfect example: four percent up, four percent down. Um, you know that is that's not normal in the context of of you know most markets. Liquidity has just become incredibly thin. But in the context of that, you have structural bond charm underpinning flows as as decay uh, and volume weighted time kind of uh, compresses during this period. Um, this is particularly true going into DS expiration. The DS expiration has been on the board for now um, three years. Uh, so there's a ton of open interest uh, all over the place uh, and, and a lot more skew exposure in the DS expiration, uh, meaning puts versus calls than a lot of these other expirations that are more recent because it's been on the board from a period when there was much more hedging, which I think is important. So a lot more positive kind of on a trend flows. We've seen that the last two kind of CPIs, like I said, and, and particularly was relevant yesterday and why we got this kind of big up and big down. In the context of that, you now add in the macro, right, which has obviously been supportive with, uh, you know, the, the compressing CPI 
which kind of we've talked about and called for, you know, is likely to be happening during this window. Um, you know, that said, some of the uh, seasonal factors that are outside the vol space uh, and, and outside of this kind of compression that I talk about so much, which are end of the year uh, kind of tax loss selling, A, and B, uh, the, the reinvesting of, uh, of, of the returns in the market that come Jan 1 um, very often are actually flowing negatively this year. So uh, I'd be very, very hesitant in the context of that seasonality, which is usually in the market, which will actually flow opposite to most years. So you really will have much more of a push and pull um, into the last couple of weeks and first couple of weeks of the year uh, compared to most years. I think that's something that people are like who just kind of blindly look at a calendar and missing. Um, but vol itself has been very compressed this period. Again, starting right around that uh, pre-Thanksgiving period, uh, again, because of that, that, that vol, uh, that, that time volume weighted uh, uh, time compression that we see and the flows that are often driven by that. Uh, not to mention the short interest, et cetera, and the low liquidity in the market. So not surprising so far, but it's hit a, it's hit that kind of low several times. They're just decaying these options and kind of hitting it's dragging along the floor. I would expect that as we get uh, into the little end of the year, beginning of the year, that you start to see a, a bit more volatility and calendar uh, expansion, um, which, which again, not for the next couple of days, but, but coming out of this OPEX is, is highly likely. Thank you, Jim. And we're still trying to get Lynn up here with those technical difficulties. Hopefully she will be back soon. Sorry about that, folks. So I am going to move here to Michael Cow. Would you agree with what everyone has said so far about the macro world? Is a 50 BPS increase inevitable and a potential 2023 rate decrease inevitable? And I'm also curious how you're viewing things in 2023 and the changes in the dot plots, Michael. So, so first, let me let me just say that here we are again, analyzing the tread depth of the bulldozer coming right towards our heads. Um, so, <laughs> it's, I, I I think we're I think we're in for some uh, rough times, uh, regardless of what the hike is. Um, and before I go into that, though, I wanted to uh, address something that Jem just said about the about vol. Um, I, I, I want to posit another big picture reason for why uh, VIX and, you know, systemic vol has been so low. And I think that has to do with just the simple negative correlation that energy has represented to the rest of the market this year. So if you think of the, the overall market as a simple two asset portfolio, uh, one that is energy, one that is not, um, you could, you could just say that, okay, well, you know, asset, the systemic vol of, of the overall market is, is basically three terms. It's basically uh, as, a weighted uh, average of as, uh, vol of asset A, uh, weighted average of vol of asset B, and then there's a, there's a covariance term, right? So energy has provided a big negative covariance uh, to the rest of the market. Um, you could argue that maybe it's too small to have that effect. But, you know, there I've seen so many different explanations for why VIX is, quote, broken, um, you know, zero DTE options being one of them. But anyways, this is this is just one theory that, that I have. And and uh, as a result, um, I'm watching what happens with energy in particular in 2023. I think that if I'm I'm. I'm in the camp that um, energy oil in particular is in a long-term structural bull. However, 
I, I see some big headwinds uh, in the first half of 2023, where it take out that that last support strut of the overall market, and it could herald a a, a return to vol. Um, okay. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to interject if I could, Michael. I actually think that's an incredibly important topic, um, but I'm going to turn it on its head a little bit, and I think you'll you'll get this more than most. I would love to kind of engage on it, but there's this. Um, as you know, 2017 was the lowest realized volatility in history, and it was a function of vol compression, right? It was also the lowest correlation of underlying constituents um, of the indexes in history by quite some sum. Um, a lot of the vol compression we've had this year is actually driven by index vol compression. Um, and I would argue, the, you know, yes, there are structural macro reasons oil has outperformed, right? But I think, uh, you know, the vol compression from the index space has driven great dispersion returns again this year and is actually, ironically, what's driving the breakdown in correlation to a large extent. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg conversation. I fully realize that and both are, are important. But I just like to add that kind of context that I actually would argue a lot of the, the vol we've seen and, and the, the, the positive uh, trend we've seen in energy um, has really been a function of the pinning of vol. Um, on the other side in the in index equity vol there. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I'd love to follow up with you on that because I, that, that's been, I've been racking my brain on, on this issue as well. Um, the, the second um, big picture um, thing I wanted to point out is I, I tweeted a, a comment from Daniel LaCal uh, yesterday, how inflation is accumulative. And he observed that, look, 7% uh, this year, plus 5% next year, plus 3% the following year, that equates to in a, in a, in a cumulative 15%. And so I think that the, the, the markets uh, in the very short term are massively overweighting the importance of the second derivative of price. And, and I have a pinned tweet right now saying, kind of saying that, okay, telling the Fed to stop just because the second derivative is turning down um, is akin to uh, saying that a traffic cop should give you a pass if you're going 100 miles per hour, but you've, you've uh, you know, stopped accelerating. Um, I think the Fed is truly in a bind because if you believe that we are in a uh, structural um, inflation, then one of the biggest risks uh, that all market participants face and the Fed faces is the conflation that a deceleration in, in um, GDP growth um, automatically results in um, a return to disinflation. But that accumulative effect of inflation is a big problem because in, in my mind, I think the average Joe on the street if, if, if you're talking about a cumulative 15% hike in prices, and that obviously is massively understated to, to the average Joe, um, their wages cannot possibly catch up to the point where um, things become affordable again, unless there is deflation, forget about disinflation, deflation. So, to, to, to echo uh, 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 Joseph's point, I think the, the, the asymmetric risk of under-tightening is 
is uh, a bigger deal here. But the market, the market's response uh, seems to be awaiting uh, the exact opposite. There seems to be much more of an asymmetric response to any sort of hopium on on a pivot. And the the last thing I'll just comment on this on this theme is that you know um, I tweeted out I think yesterday that um, I was echoing a chart that Tony Pasquarella at Goldman Sachs put out showing that the easing of uh, financial conditions even prior to to yesterday. Um, essentially put us put the market back to you know be you know before this uh you know the 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 blast of four 75 basis point hikes so um i really think that the fed uh would would be making a big mistake if they essentially followed the bond market's lead here and and you know paused too early and or worse the bond market is forecasting that they is set that the bond market is not even pricing in or the risk markets are not even pricing in much of a pause at all right it's it's basically pausing in an inverse v in terms of monetary policy and i just don't from where i sit i don't see that in the cards um, if they do make that mistake I, I i will i think that we're in for potentially a second round of tightening, which would really, really catch people off uh, off sides. Thank you, Michael. So before we move on, does anybody on the panel have any comments on what other panelists have said so far here in their opening statements? I'm, ha I'm happy to hop in real quick. I saw Lynn hop back on. I think she made a really good point at the at the beginning uh, of, of the conversation. And, you know, we often agree on, on, on a lot of the things she's saying. I would like to add some color to what she's saying, though, in terms of, you know, the Fed basically only being able to control uh, demand. I would actually argue, I'd take that one step further, that the Fed is actually making the supply side worse on a more secular basis. I, I come on every time, I kind of say the same thing, but I want to keep drilling at home. There's Everybody's talking about inflation in two dimensions, as if uh, the cyclical inflationary piece, which, you know, up, down in the current CPI is what matters. There's really the cyclical component, which is really a function of the, of the Fed reducing demand. And then there's the much more longer term, you know, what's happening to inflation structurally and more secularly. And ironically, in battling the demand side uh, and using the tools that the Fed is to lower cyclical inflation, they are exacerbating the supply side problems and, and, and making secular inflation worse. This is what we saw in the 60s and 70s, you know, and they're driving uh, you know, more deglobalization, less money to capital. At the end of the day, they, you know, capital, which is supply. I talk about that planet Palo Alto analogy. Money is not going to planet Palo Alto anymore. That ultimately is going to reduce supply and actually exacerbate inflation. Of course, of rising higher housing costs as well. Maybe not in the cost of the homes themselves, but rents are going significantly higher as a result, et cetera. So a lot of these things, these supply side uh, problems are made worse by the Fed raising rates. Um, and even though that's cyclically going to slow down inflation from the demand side, ultimately, much like the 60s and 70s, we're going to see a higher low to the kind of long run uh, rate of inflation. Eventually, I think it's inevitable that the long term expectations of inflation go higher, which then create a much stickier inflation problem for the Fed. 
Thank you, Jim. Really good points to add in there. Really appreciate that. So kind of moving forward here, Michael just said that we're in rough times ahead and Lynn spoke about the potential recession incoming. For reference, the spread between the 10-year and two-year treasury is near the lowest point since 1981, while the spread between the 10-year and three-month treasury is near the lowest since 99. In other words, the treasury curve is now deeply inverted, which has been a reliable signal for recessions in the last eight signals. Lynn, welcome back. Great to have you back up here. I'm wondering, from your point of view, could you speak about an upcoming recession, perhaps highlight your recent November 2022 newsletter, The Long-Term Fiscal Spiral? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different time frames we can look on. The long-term fiscal spiral is more about you know, looking out more than just a year. Uh, that's not really an issue over a, a number of months, but essentially that, you know, when they did the whole Volcker thing in the late 70s, early 80s, you, you jack interest rates up super high, get up to structurally positive real rates. They were able to do that at a time because the federal government had 30% that the GDP and therefore interest rates, uh, you know, interest expense was manageable. Um, they got up to about 5% at one point um, of GDP being spent on interest. Um, and now it's, you know, it's currently something like 3%. Um, and so, but over time, if you were to jack up interest rates very, very high and try to have structurally positive real rates, you would run into an issue when you have 120, 130% debt to GDP. And then a further compounding effect from the fact that if asset prices are not rising, then generally deficits are rising faster, right? Because uh, tax revenue is very much tied to asset prices to a significant degree. Um, and so all of that is, I think, I think going to put long-term pressure on the federal budget and potentially open up, uh, you know, as we go maybe into the second half of this decade for the prospect of yield curve control. But that's that's a longer-term issue. I think the near-term issue is how they're going to navigate 2023 because, you know, in addition to the yield curve that we've, we've talked about, there's also the observation that if, if the unemployment rate rises by, for example, 50 basis points, um, it almost never just stops there. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the last, like, you know, five recessions, eight recessions, or however many recessions, if you have a meaningful rise in unemployment from a very low base, that historically tends to feed on itself, right? So it's always kind of this, the, the plan is always to kind of hit a state of normalcy, a state of neutrality. That's kind of this, like, ephemeral target that you never hit. You always overshoot or undershoot. And so I think that the probability that they're going to successfully navigate this uh, in 2023 uh, you know, the historical numbers tell us it's low, and I think the current data uh, tell us that the, that the likelihood is low, that unless something were to materially change in 2023 compared to the current trajectory, we seem to be heading towards recession. Um, now, I think one, one um, mistake that some analysts make is that, you know, nowadays when people think of recession, they think of the Chesney crisis. Um, it's kind of like the, the classic case of fighting the last battle. Um, so people are are often worried about bank insolvencies, they're worried about kind of this big deflationary bust type of recession, uh, whereas, you know, a lot of conditions are different now compared to that period. I mean, and and just, just as a starting point, banks are in a much different position now than they were in 2008. So in 2008, they had a very low percentage of their assets in safe assets, like, say, reserves and treasuries, and they had a very high percentage of their assets in um, things that are exposed to credit risk, you know, various types of lending and, and riskier securities. And now, partially because of their own uh, more conservative lending standards and also partially due to regulation, banks are now stuffed full of a lot more, um, uh, you know, nominally risk-free assets. They still have other risks, obviously, like inflation. Um, but essentially, 
I'm not, I'm less concerned about, for example, the banking sector than I am, you know, than, than I think the average analyst is. And I'm more concerned about other areas, uh, mainly technology, mainly um, just some of these other areas that are popping up. And so, you know, I think that's something to keep in mind that we are probably headed towards recession unless the trend changes, but it's not necessarily the type of recession that people imagine. And if, if I could just address something that Lynn just said, I, I, I do agree with you, Lynn, that uh, that perhaps looking and, th and this also goes to the, the you know, the the low VIX uh, uh, theme, perhaps, you know, we're looking in the in the in the wrong rearview mirror here. Um, I wonder whether this is this bear market is the much more kind, the one that I call a slow motion train wreck bear market, that it's kind of what we saw um, in the 70s, in, you know, instead of a violent crash that we saw in 2008 and 2020, um, you have this, this slow rolling bear, uh, where, you know, it, you know, people get sucked in every single time, thinking that, you know, this is this is the bot, this is the V bottom, this is the V bottom. But what happens is you just have a generally downward sloping, trendless type of market, but generally downward sloping that just that that just, you know, overall grinds people up over a much longer period of time. Yeah, we actually like, did a oh go ahead, Joseph. Uh, uh, so I like the the point that Lynn made that we often uh, are fighting last war. And I also agree that there's nothing wrong with the banking sector this time. But I think another way you can think about how we're fighting the last war is how we think about recession. Now, normally, so a recession technically is basically the economy produces less goods and services than before. It's not growing in real terms. But a recession can happen in two ways. So let's say you're a car factory and today you're producing 100 cars. And so... And tomorrow we'll say next year you're producing 90 cars. Now that could be because there's less demand for your cars, or it could be because you are not able to acquire the amount of labor or materials to produce 90 cars, to produce, produce 100 cars. So you ended up producing 90. And this matters tremendously because in both cases, it's a recession. You were producing 100 today, and a year from now you're producing 90. There's negative growth. In the past few decades, that the reason that you produced 90 was because there was insufficient demand. And so the appropriate policy response was always to cut rates and that would stimulate demand. So let's say interest rates are lower, maybe you would borrow more to buy a car, boom. And that's kind of ingrained into the markets. That's why the market sees recession and thinks rate cuts, bonds rally. But there's another way that we could have recessions as well. Again, what if you just couldn't get enough materials now, we see this playing out already, and I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about more obvious things, such as reduction in the supply of labor. And Chair Powell mentioned this as well. Now, if you look at projections for the labor force uh, made pre-COVID compared to today, we're three and a half million people short. And that in part is due to population aging, but also in part due to early retirements. And as Michael and Jim also noted, we have possibly other structural limitations as well, like oil. Now, if we have a world where the economy is not growing because the potential growth of the economy is lower than the past because there's less inputs, now, then we could have a recession and yet we could still have high inflation. And if the input constraint is labor, we could also have low unemployment. 
Now, that fundamentally changes the reaction for policy because then you could hike rates without worrying about um, your employment mandate. And so that's a good argument for higher for longer. And the thing is that, now, this is strange to say this, but I think the Fed in some aspects is ahead of the market in thinking about this. And that almost never happens. But if you listen to speeches from, say, Governor Brainerd or some smart people in the ECB, they, they seem to be onto this, that perhaps less globalization, population aging, and energy constraints are limiting potential growth. And that means that we have a supply side issue, as, as many of you have noted. And Joseph, you know, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, I'm sure you saw uh, Brainerd's uh, BIS speech a couple of weeks ago, but I, what I found significant about that speech wasn't, I didn't really see it talked about that much, but what I found significant was the acknowledgement that um, rolling, quote, transitory uh, supply issues can accumulate into uh, non-transitory uh, inflationary effects and certainly contribute to heightened volatility of inflation itself. Exactly. And, you know, Brainerd is the lead dog on the FOMC, and he's, she's saying things that suggest that uh, a more hawkish, at least medium-term policy. Yeah, I think I'm going to jump in here. Um, again, I, I'm going to be on the opposite. So everybody, I think, out there, I'm, I'm, I'm out the outlier, thinks that... Uh, that higher for longer is better for structural or like the structural inflationary problem and the supply side problem. I want to be clear, higher for longer, again, historically, and based on all the data that I look at ultimately will make inflation, uh, you know, uh, worse, meaning, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's driving bigger structural supply side issues. So I, I agree that supply, you know, su supply side issues are sticky um, but I'm arguing actually that that those supply side issues are actually being made worse by the Fed um, being so um, active. Um, so that's the first thing I'd like to say. I want to also respond broadly, importantly, to two other things. Lynn mentioned recession, uh, you know, and, and everybody's talking about the odds of recession and kind of conflating that with what that means for markets. That if we get a big recession, that the market's going down. But that's deflationary and that means the market's going down. You know, I, I want to highlight, you know, 60s and 70s, we had a very, that McChesney-Martin uh, recession in, in 69, 70 was very shallow, a little bit longer, but it was very shallow. We were in a demand push. And actually, the market came out very strong from that recession. And ultimately, it the problems that the market had was, was not because of the recession, ultimately, but once... Uh, once the Fed made money uh, freely available again, much like we've seen in a lot of other situations, the problem of the 70s for the market and not going anywhere in nominal terms and losing 65% of its value over 40 year, 14 years during that 60s and 70s period was you know, simply lack of demand for investment. You know, the reverse Tina effect, money was flowing into bonds away from stocks. You had less demand in general, margin compression, higher discount rates. And higher risk premium, you, you, you know, all of those things, which are the second order effects of inflation are really the problem for the market. It is, it is not a recession. It is not the lack of demand. And broadly, we're seeing a very, again, as we called for six months ago, a, a market that's uh, really battling these, these rate, uh, you know, these rises in rates uh, very, very well. It continues to be very robust in the face of those. And I think that's, that's structural. Thank you, everyone. Last bear. I'm curious your thoughts as well here on recession and what the other panelists are saying so far regarding a potential mid hawkish Fed. 
Yeah, so I think with respect to recession, I know I think maybe on some of the earlier spaces that, that we were doing over the summer, at, at the time there was a debate about whether we were in a recession at that moment in time. Um, that was sort of the talk of, you know, uh, what, what folks were talking about. And obviously that, that really wasn't the case. And I think that if you look at pretty much all the economic data right now, you don't see recession, even if you think forward leading indicators like the curve inversion or PMIs, um, a lot of the manufacturing goods uh, type type data doesn't look great. But overall consumption um, is being you know held up strongly by services. Um, uh, real income growth, I think, is now starting to be positive after trending down for much of the, the past year. Um, and you just uh, you know so far, I, I guess what I'm saying is. I'm waiting for the data to confirm that that there's a recession, and until I see that, I'm, I'm not going to be confident in saying that one is about to happen. Uh, and I think that we are in sort of an unusual time, um, you know, coming out of everything out of the pandemic, where um, the labor market's very tight, um, and, and it's probably going to be a lot harder to, to sort of increase unemployment. Um, spending continues to be strong. Consumers still, um, uh, their balance sheets are probably getting marginally worse over the past year but they still are very strong coming out of the the pandemic so i think you know i'm i'm a little bit more cautious about saying that you know we're about to tip into some some deep recession sort of data dependent if that's the uh word that we use today uh, on that thank you Les. go ahead Jeff. that's gonna add one last thing i couldn't agree more and you know the data keeps saying you know you keep hearing recession 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 the part i want to emphasize is that that might be the worst thing for the market is a shallow uh, you know, a, a shallower than expected recession or no recession at all um, with, a, with, with stickier inflation. Um, and that's ultimately will, will drive less demand for stocks. That's probably the worst situation, ironically, for markets. A deeper recession will drive more stimulus from the Fed, lower rates and, and help ec- uh, risk assets. So I, I actually, you know, I agree that it's a demand push economy likely to be uh, structurally stronger than expected. That, that's probably the worst thing for equities. Uh, to last first point, I also know that the Atlanta GDP now continues to show that pretty good positive economic growth for this quarter. And many of the Wall Street strategists are just pushing doom and gloom for next year. And I, I think that's to Jim's point that, you know, if we get doom and gloom, then maybe the Fed, maybe the Fed cuts and then uh, equities go back to the moon. So that's actually good for markets. So good news is bad news. But uh, one other thing that I'd like to add to, to Jim's point about, you know, higher rates, maybe actually inflationary by exacerbating supply situations. Now, rates affect all sectors differently and so forth, but one other aspect that higher rates could be more inflationary uh, going forward has to do with also Lynn Alden's point about um, this fiscal situation that the government is in. So the debt to GDP is much higher than it used to be. Now, that means that when the interest rates go higher, the world's largest debtor, the federal government, is going to have to pay more money on its interest. Now, the way the, the government finances its interest rate payments is, in a sense, it basically prints it. So if you can think of them as um, basically printing treasury securities to use to pay their interest rate payments. So when the government pays their interest payment in this way, it increases the purchasing power of the general public. You can easily imagine a situation where let's say debt to GDP goes to one, 200% because constant federal spending and um, interest rates go higher. And so in, in a sense, increasing the supply of interest income to the general public. Now this sounds 
really bizarre, but it's actually something that's well-founded in monetary economic theory by a paper first put by Sergeant Waller uh, a few decades ago. It's actually super influential. So that's something to keep thinking, keep in mind as well. The higher level of debt constrains the impact of monetary policy. To add on to that, I think that's a great point, Joseph, and I'm sure folks have seen or, or talked about remittances, and that's now a, a big topic now that sort of Fed remittances to the Treasury has gone or you know gone from a positive number to now a negative number. But if you think about the fact that there's between the reverse repo and uh, reserves at banks about five trillion dollars that the Fed is now paying, you know, going to be over four percent interest rate on starting today. Um, you know, that's something like $200 billion of, of interest payments that's going out to holders of money market funds and, and to banks. Um, so just that, that is a big point where that's, you know, stimulative in sort of an ironic sense. And a lot of it goes to the banks. And, you know, right now what that happens is Sid Perdue makes this point a lot is that it increases the net income, net, net interest income of commercial banks, boosting their capital, allowing them to make more loans. So it's totally not what you want to be doing right now, but it's happening. So I want to touch a little bit on what Joseph said as well. Joseph, thank you for bringing up debt and treasuries. So Joseph, could you speak a bit more on the treasury market for listeners? For context, as the Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates, the foreign sector has stopped buying, banks have stopped buying, and the Fed is selling. Treasuries are generally seen as a quote-unquote safe asset, but the result has been unusually high levels of volatility and illiquidity in the treasury market. Joseph, can you give us a, a little bit of a year review for treasuries, their current context, and what we can expect next year if Powell does pivot or if rates are sustained for a long period of time in the treasury market? So it's been absolute carnage, basically, in the fixed income market this year. Uh, Jim Bianco has a really good chart showing uh, just the yearly returns for, for fixed income for, for like the past 50 years. And this year is one of the very worst. And that has to do with Fed rate hikes and higher inflation. So broadly speaking, though, the big issue that the official sector and many market participants have been concerned about is not so much the change in the level of, of rates that treasuries are selling off, but the treasury market liquidity is it has been poor. As you mentioned, Spider-Man, the treasury market is kind of a global safe haven. And so we want it to be liquid. We want people to be able to sell and buy uh, with minimal market impact. That's kind of what makes it money-like. But many indicators of treasury market liquidity have been deteriorating significantly. So it's been better this past month, but the trend is not good. And in some indicators, it's approaching what it was in March, 2020. Now there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think one of the big reasons is there's just this tremendous mismatch between supply and demand. Now, as you mentioned earlier, now a lot of the marginal buyers in the market have, have stepped out. For the past couple of years, the big marginal buyer has been the Fed, obviously through QE, but also with commercial banks. Now, they're both out of the market and the market is searching for a new marginal buyer. It seems so far that the new marginal buyer is a broad category called households, which includes things like hedge funds, private equity funds, and personal trusts. So they've been stepping in a little bit and helping, but that's just the demand side. It's really not clear how, many, how much they can buy. The supply side, I think, is probably the biggest driver for, for treasury market illiquidity and 
higher rates this year so far. So usually the treasury, okay, so five years ago, the treasury was selling about half a trillion dollars in debt. One years ago, sometimes they would sell nothing. They would have a balanced budget. But since uh, 2019, 2018, they've been selling about a trillion dollars a year. And now because of QT, they're selling about a one and a half trillion dollars a year. And they expect to do this for the foreseeable future. This is a tremendous supply of treasuries that the market has to absorb. And the market is, seems to be having a little bit of trouble absorbing that. And so you see higher poor liquidity and higher rates. Um, going forward, if we do have a very deep recession, I think that kind of bells out the treasury market a little bit because the input, the, I can think many market participants are conditioned to start buying treasuries when there's poor economic data. And that seems to be happening and right now and why treasury market liquidity has improved. But if we get that case, we actually have a shallow recession or, or as uh, Jim and last year suggested, maybe, maybe it's not even that bad, then you know, that, that uh, safe haven bit, recession bit could go away. And we'll go back to the situation where we were a couple months ago, where trade yields go higher, market liquidity goes very poor, and you could potentially have an accident like what we saw in the UK. Recall, uh, I'd say a month ago, the UK guilt market basically melted down, yields soared higher, um, and the Bank of England had to step in to act as emergency buyer of last resort. The reason it soared higher was because um, the UK government was thinking that it would just subsidize everyone's energy bill and you know, borrow a whole bunch in the markets. And the Bank of England was thinking that they would do QT and start selling uh, gilts. That sudden surge of supply or anticipated supply, I think the market was not able to handle. We could very much have that kind of scenario here in the treasury market as well, uh, simply because the balance could be very large, absent this, what I perceive to be temporary recession bid. Thank you, Joseph. So I'm going to touch a bit more on that there. But first, I want to spin over to Lynn here. Joseph commented a bit on the debt to GDP ratio. And you have a great, pretty sizable section that everybody should read, by the way. Anything that Lynn puts out, you should be reading that. Uh, in your recent piece, Lynn, I'd love to get your views on debt currently, the upcoming debt problem, and what other speakers have said about it so far, given the treasuries. Well, I think a number of other speakers have made good points that basically when you get to a very high government debt to GDP ratio uh, and then you combine that with paying out more interest, um, you are essentially putting more money into the, the economy, right, uh, whether they, they like to or not. And that can enter in different forms, but essentially what it is is just paying out more and more dollars and more and more treasuries out into, you know, the, the private sector net worth. Um, and so over the long term, that can actually have, as others have pointed out, a pretty counterintuitive effect. Um, in addition, we see an environment where even though the yield curve is inverted, um, bank deposit rates have not risen um, by any meaningful degree compared to even short-term interest rates um, because they're not really you know, deposit constrained. Um, and so a lot of banks still have a pretty wide spread between what they're borrowing at and what they're, you know, to the extent that they're lending, what they're lending at. Um, and I, I think one way to look at this, you know, kind of like a prior point we we're all talking about of, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, uh, fighting the last battle for recessions. You know, a lot of people are approaching this as though it's a, a you know, sharp disinflationary recession. Whereas I do think the longer grind, shallower recession um, is probably closer to a base case type of, you know, assumption. And another way to think about it is that in many ways, developed markets 
you know, last year, you know, basically this year, this calendar year, and then, and then probably next calendar year, are experiencing something that is normally associated with emerging market recessions, which is where, you know, their economy slows, their bond yields go up, not down, um, and then they, they suffer more inflationary types of recessions. And it's often because, one, their debt is denominated in a currency they can't print, which is different than developed markets. And two, they often, because their currency is not in high demand, they have trouble accessing some of the external goods and services that are Im important for their um, economy. And what developed markets have been facing this year, I mean, Europe's the most obvious case, uh, that the, because they have a shortage in energy, um, they've experienced essentially an emerging market-style recession just through different mechanisms. And as the United States in the years ahead encounters these very, very high debt levels, very high interest on the debt, you essentially encounter that same type of emerge, emerging market recession. We can have oversupply of treasuries, higher yields, worse liquidity conditions, uh, and problems like that. And then when you throw in, you know, new geopolitical constraints, right? So there's already an environment where, you know, back in 2013, with the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, China you know, announced that it was no longer in their interest to con continue accumulating treasuries. Um, and so, that you know, their treasury holdings have been flat to down. For the better part of a decade now, there's not really that foreign appetite for treasuries that there used to be. Um, you also have the environment where if the dollar index is, is soaring higher, as it was for much of this year until pretty recently, uh, that puts more pressure on foreign central banks. They don't really accumulate treasuries in that type of environment. If anything, they could be selling them in order to you know support their own currencies. And so you see, usually see a pretty strong inverse correlation between dollar strength and foreign official uh, you know, treasury accumulation. And then three with the, uh, you know, the Russian invasion and the subsequent cutting the mouth, uh, you know, freezing their reserves. One way to think of that is a default. I mean, it's a strategic default on certain liabilities to, to a certain extent. And so every country in the world, you know, that is not on super friendly terms with the United States or Europe has to reconsider some of its reserve practices and basically factor in the probability of default. Um, you know, targeted uh, sanction-like default. And so they have to, you know, review their reserve practices and decide if that maybe changes some of their weighting towards U.S. treasuries or, or you know, Euro European bonds. Um, and so I do think that going forward, some of the trouble will keep reemerging uh, in the treasury market and some of these other sovereign bond markets and, you know, less so perhaps in some of the private sector markets that the, that analysts are conditioned to be always looking uh, for trouble in. Thank you, Lynn. And so we got the numbers coming out in just a few minutes here before I move on to the next line of questions. So we'll wait for those to come out. But in the meantime, does anybody have any comments on what Lynn just said? Uh, and apologies if you get interrupted for the number drop, but I, I do want to continue on that discussion. This has been really great so far. Thank you all. Can I, can I riff a little bit on what uh, Lynn and Joseph said? Please do, yeah. On the uh, on the yield curve, so you know, the, so the elusive bear steepener that I've been looking for has been elusive to say the least, right? And and I would argue that you know, despite the carnage that the bond markets have seen year to date, I mean, if you just look at where the yield curve is today versus say seven weeks ago when you know the ten year and the thirty year peaked a little bit above four percent. We're we're a very far cry away from where uh, both Brainerd and Powell have said they'd like to see 
you know, positive real rates all along the curve. And, um, you know, despite the fact that we, you know, the, the U.S. debt to GDP is 130% and, you know, all, all those arguments, I would make the same argument about comparing, say, you know, uh, fiat against fiat and sovereign credit risk against sovereign credit risk. I think that, um, you know, there, there are endogenous factors that lend the so-called safety bid that, that keep, you know, uh, U.S. risk-free rates uh, lower than other areas. And, you know, y- y- you, can't, you can't just consider the liability side of a sovereign balance sheet without also considering the asset side of a sovereign's balance sheet. So I, w- I would just make that point. Anybody else have a comment on what Michael said here? And so, Michael, I do have one question for you here while we still await the numbers. Um, you said previously, unpopular view, I'm looking forward to more gargantuan hikes so I can buy more T-bills. I'd love your view, Mike, on the Treasury markets at the moment and the changes you see in 2023, bulldozer aside. Well, so, you know, I've, I've had this, this view that so, so far has been wrong that um, I think that a, ultimately we're going to need to see a, a bear steepener for, for some of the reasons that Joseph mentioned, but for, for a it's kind of a practical reason that I see, um, you know, I, I don't see the Fed being able to take Fed funds up to a point that can actually create, uh, that can actually bring inflation back in the bottle without also causing um, a lot of credit stress in the markets. Because, you know, look, if you're a, if you're a levered uh, loan borrower, for instance, and you're, you're starting, um, be, your beginning of year interest expense was SOFR plus 400, and uh, end of year interest expense is effectively, you know, nine percent now instead of four percent. Um, that is that pr- potentially creates a a credit stress. And so, you know, one way I, I posited in my I, uh, bear steepener thread, one way out is potentially to to try to bear steepen the curve, um, perhaps in conjunction with. Uh, uh, with Treasury, and and certainly in October we saw other central banks actually doing that job for us. Right to Lynn's point, other central banks were essentially selling their Treasury reserves to defend their currencies, and so we did get a, a brief bit of bear steepening in October. But since then, the markets have uh, the bond market is massively inverted, and um, I wonder. You know, Joseph's questions about, you know, uh, thin treasury liquidity notwithstanding, I wonder whether the the treasury markets are holding up way too well, Um, um, you know, just given given the inflationary environment we're in. So I'm a little distracted. I'm watching the uh, the press, the uh, headlines. Yeah, so so on that note, no surprise to anyone really. The hike was fifty BPS as as I think most, if not all, economists were expecting there. Are there any comments from anybody on the panel here immediately here after the release? I know some of you are taking some time to look at 
the full release there. But any any immediate commentary on the 50 bips? For me, what's important was just the dot plot. And as Powell promised last time, it's a little bit higher than the September dot plot. So they're thinking that um, Fed funds will be about 5.1 median end of next year rather than 4.6 last year. And of course, that's still uh, notably higher than what the market is pricing. And thereafter, um, the 2024 dot plot is also slightly higher, um, 4.1% rent other than three, instead of 3.9% from September. So I guess we'll listen to how Powell um, hammers home his higher for longer spiel in a few minutes. Anyone else have any comments? Okay, so while we hang on here for the presser, which I believe is in about 25 minutes, let's start diving in a little bit deeper to things. So back in October... Lynn wrote a great piece on energy called Energy Problems. Yes, still there. In it, Lynn, you spoke about the increasing energy uses, yet the lack of government control, investment, and thought into future demand. Last bear, given your deep history in 1970s inflation and commodity issues back then, could you, last bear, briefly explain this, perhaps with a focus on the U.S. market and Biden's sales of 15 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at 83 bucks per barrel in October, and now buying it back at $72 per barrel, and why oil bulls keep saying there will be a huge windfall in 2023, Last Bear? Um, yeah, sure. I'm not sure I'm the best to, to answer, but I, I would say I actually do have a pretty extensive background in, in the energy space. Um, we've been we've been releasing an enormous amount out of the SPR for a consistently long time, something like a million barrels a day, which is a huge amount um, to to sort of influence domestic prices. And obviously, there's more that goes into the global um, oil market than than just the SPR releases. But um, I think that it's impossible to say that those SPR releases haven't made a material impact on the price of oil. And that to the extent that we get to the point where those releases are no longer possible or are chosen not to, you know, we, we choose not to do it, um, it should definitely make a significant impact in, in balancing the oil market. Um, but beyond that, I, I'm not sure. I think maybe the original question was for regarding Lynn's piece, which I'm not familiar with. I would love to hear your thoughts there as well, Lynn. But first, I want to kick over to Jem and Michael. While still reading these headlines, do either of you have any thoughts on the commodity world? I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, I think I, I'm going to take a, a vol-centric view, which is obviously everybody's looking for up-down, right? Um, I think uh, vol levels uh, in, in the commodity space have been grossly overdone. I think this is... Uh, there are a lot of other areas where they've been, the market's been very efficient this year. Uh, FX vol has gone up. Treasury vol has gone up. Those are all things that should have happened given the structural environment we're in. But what we've seen historically and what I believe to be true in the commodity space is, and, and the place I have higher conviction than anywhere, is not necessarily that, the, that oil is going up fast in any way or that we're going to get a volatile move. It's really that there's a put underneath this market. Uh, in, in the commodity space. And that's not just because of the, you know, the $70, $72, obviously SPR refill uh, and broadly what OPEC has said in the short term, really a structural, during these periods, you know, we've had this Fed put right uh, on, on the market. And, and, and so markets have had a, a relatively low vol secular move higher 
throughout the last, you know, you've had some some periods of, of, of crisis, but at the end quickly and they end in V bottoms, you know, uh, that, that's a function of a, a, a 10,000 pound gorilla, the Fed being able to underpin and, and reduce fall, uh, you know, in the form of a Fed put. During a resource scarce period uh, and during periods of inflation, which, which tend to be resource scarce period, entities with a power in the energy space, primarily OPEC plus, um, have undue, uh, you know, power and, and they tend to underpin price over structurally longer periods. And that's likely to drive a secular, not only a, a secular rally over time, but a lower vol than we've seen historically, more one-sided vol um, uh, uh, market uh, over longer periods. So we really uh, here, Kai, think that there's, we're in for a, a much more uh, of, a, of a OPEC plus put in this market, uh, much more upside drift over longer timeframes. And the best way to play that is, is with short puts in the vol, given, given how elevated vol has gotten uh, during this period in the commodity space. Thank you, Jim. So Michael oh. and Lynn, do you agree with Jim? And also maybe could you add in your thoughts of China reopening versus the demand destruction from a recession to you two? So Michael, then Lynn, please. That's perfect. That's exactly what I, where I was going to go. Um, so just from a full disclosure standpoint, so I've, I've uh, had this very long-term structural uh, bullish bet uh, in oil since the depths of 2016, where I basically participated in a in a uh, restructuring of an oil company, and uh, it's a, it's expressed through a, a essentially like a 10-year bet through private equity. So I'm actually talking against my book here. Um, I'm long-term bullish on oil, but I actually see the fact the forces of demand destruction perhaps outweighing the forces of supply supply curtailment in the short term. And short term, I mean in the next, say, six to 12 months. Um, I'm very concerned that uh, that uh, the, the folks that are super, super pulled up on oil are focused on the China reopening. Um, I had a very deep discussion uh, with another energy specialist, Alexander Stahl. If you guys don't follow him, you guys should. Um, he has a very, very granular uh, knowledge of, of both the oil and gas market. But um, he, he thinks that, the, that basically China, the China reopening with respect to oil is already baked in. Uh, thinks that uh, they're, they're, they're already at product tank tops. And if you look at their demand, um, it's already reached uh, – close to pre-COVID levels, um, apparent demand. So, so I'm, I'm very concerned that in the, in the short term, um, especially going into Q1 and Q2 of next year, um, perhaps we do see some softness finally in um, uh, uh, global employment numbers. Um, I think that could potentially uh, have a negative effect on oil in the short term. That I, said, I, I just want to say that longer term, I do think perhaps in 24, 25, um, there, we will reach this point where I call it the stru su structural supply demand singularity point where even a perhaps a uh, recession impacted demand eventually outstrips global supply. Um, the other, the other short-term concern I have is that I think OPEC uh, uh, acted way too soon. It just befuddled me when um, uh, OPEC essentially announced its two million barrel cut to quotas, 
um, when Brent was still around 90. Um, and to me, that was more MBS succumbing to his ego to stick it to Biden. And, and now I feel like they have a little bit less room to maneuver. I, I want to hop in real quick, just because this, this touches on two points we talked about before too, Michael. Um, I, I actually agree with your point 100%. So long, the, the puts I'm talking about on the market are long-term puts, right? It's a structural call on vol longer term, particularly downside vol and skew. In the short term, I couldn't agree with you more. We referenced before how, you know, there was this uh, chicken or the egg scenario with oil versus the market um, and, and really how, uh, you know, vol compression in the equity index land and uh, the equity index space uh, was pinning vol and causing more dispersion, which, uh, you know, ironically pushed outperformance, uh, had to out push outperformance somewhere if tech was going to roll over. And that outperformance naturally came in the energy space, given the inflationary pressures. Um, I would argue that this liquid X liquidation next leg down, which I've actually talked about for some time coming in Q1, Q2. So our, our timelines kind of open up, will be more centric to the equity index vol space. Uh, vol is much more, much less well hedged in the equity vol space. It's the one space that everybody has abandoned because it hasn't worked and people are getting crushed. Um, in that in that space, I think that under positioning, which is kind of the second move phenomenon I've talked about, is likely to happen Q1, Q2. As that does, uh, we're likely to see correlations go more to one, and and I think the energy space will get dragged down with it. That said, I think that's a uh, that's a liquidation of of levered longs in the space as well, um, and, and and there's going to be no place to hide in that kind of a vol event. And ultimately, I do think the energy will come out of that looking like the cleanest shirt and, and an otherwise very dirty. Um, you know, basket of laundry. And, and I think that's a secular opportunity. Um, and I think ultimately that, that, that if you're going to be long, that's part of why I think, you know, puts longer dated puts in that space are still quite safe, where as in other markets, they probably wouldn't be as safe. Thank you, Jim. So here, I want to hear your thoughts as well, Lynn. And then I saw Joseph had his hand up. So we'll kick over to Joseph after you, Lynn. Yeah, so I'm modeling it very similar to Michael and Jam. Essentially, that 2023 is very uncertain for energy prices because you're you're contrasting supply side constraints with demand destruction. Um, whereas, for example, when I look out to 2024, 2025, you know, probably the next rising you know PMI cycle, uh, economic acceleration cycle, that's when I would be very very bullish again uh, on energy. And so I, I currently view us as in a disinflationary period within a structurally uh, bullish, uh, you know, environment uh, for uh, oil and, and, and energy broadly. Um, and because there's, there's still been no structural supply response, right? These were very brief uh, uh, price spikes. Uh, producers uh, treated them as such. And there's, there's just been no, you know, significant supply response. Um, and, you know, U.S. shale takes a lot of ongoing input in order to even just maintain its current output, let alone grow it. Uh, I think Russia is going to have some trouble maintaining their current level of output, given the withdrawal of, um, you know, Western capital, Western equipment. Um, and so I think there's a number of challenges when we look out a couple of years, uh, you know, that are that are bullish uh, for the energy complex. That's after we get past whatever happens in 2023, which depends on, you know, how fast and to what extent China reopens, what is already priced in. Um, you know, what happens with, uh, you know, how, how hawkish, say, the Fed is or how, how good they are at suppressing demand. The last point I'd make is that if you look at historical global energy usage, um, the average recession does not actually reduce global energy demand. 
Um, it just slows it down. Uh, and so it, the, the one, the exceptions where it actually slowed down, like where it actually reduced uh, global energy uh, consumption compared to the prior year were only a few. One was 2020 for obvious reasons, all the lockdowns. Um, the prior one to that was the 2008 recession because that was severe enough to do it. Um, and then prior to that, it was uh, the early 80s uh, recessions. Um, and apart from those three periods, uh, the typical recession does not actually reduce, outright reduce energy use. It just slows down the growth of energy use. Um, and so that's a variable, I think, to consider when we model out what we're expecting for 2023 or, or into the next year. Thank you, Lynn. Joseph, I saw you had your hand okay. raised earlier. Yeah. yeah. Can, can, so can I, I just agree make with... a quick... So, please, please go ahead. May, may, I just, may I just make a quick comment to what Lynn just said? Because Lynn raised a very important point that I think some people... Um, I, I've just had, had debates online about this. Uh, a, a lot of bullish uh, oil people will say that, hey, you know, in 2008, we only saw a year-over-year -year, um, 500,000 demand loss. The problem with that argument is that not it's not just demand loss that we need to talk about. We need to talk about what it was versus growth expectations. So it was actually a one and a half million barrel per day demand loss versus expectations. And so just given that and given how, um, you know, usually, you know, part of the reason for this, the uh uh, Jim, the heteroscedasticity in, in oil vol is that I, I observe that it these collapses, these demand shock, downward demand shocks usually happen when oil supply is very tight and the and the supply curve is very, very inelastic. And so when you have an unforeseen demand downward demand shock, you have a very, very violent move down, even if the apparent demand losses was only 500,000 barrels. You saw what that did to oil prices in 2008. Thank you, Michael. Joseph, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to add to everyone's good points that, you know, like I say, don't fight the Fed. More broadly, you can think of it as don't fight the government. I mean, the public sector has tremendous power. And right now, they're putting out a pretty unified message, not just in the U.S., but also abroad as well, is that they don't like fossil fuels. They want to constrain the supply. And they're doing a lot of things to, to get rid of this, even recruiting the central banks. One of the interesting things that is happening both in the U.S. and it's happening in the Eurozone as well is that they seem to be trying to use their regulatory powers to um, discourage banks from making loans, that is to say, making loans to the fossil fuel industry, that is to say, starving them from capital. They can do this through their regulatory powers where they raise the cost to banks of making loans to these, um, I know, not to green sectors. So, you know, if the official sector wants to choke the supply of fossil fuels, then you know, the prices of them are, are going to go higher. I, I wouldn't fight them. And that's, I think that's I mean, a pretty fair point. Go ahead, Lester. Yeah, no, just tangibly on that, we, you, you saw that happen with coal over the past, you know, decade or so. Again, talking from some personal experience that, you know, you, you couldn't touch coal if you were at a lot of banks, if you were allowed to add a lot of asset managers. It was just a, a no-go, um, just purely based on, um, you know, the, the direction of, of the bank as opposed to the economics of the company or whatnot. And yet we saw, you know, we, we see currently where coal prices are today. 
um, you know, making all time highs across men and thermal coal around the world. And obviously there's a lot that goes into it, but I would just say that, you know, those dynamics, we've, we've seen that play out in the dirtiest end of the fossil fuel sector and, uh, um, could definitely see it as sort of a longer term trend going into oil and natural gas. All right. So looks like we'll be having the Powell presser in about 10 minutes to discuss the FOMC minutes that were removed. So what I'd like to do now is I wanted to ask a question about the ECB, but we're going to kick over to the final thoughts on the year and what we feel 2023 holds for us. So I'm just going to go down the panel again, much like I did with the introductions and kind of give your, your final thoughts here on everything we've discussed on what 2023 is looking like from your point of view. And please feel free to plug anything you've got to plug, any newsletters you got coming out, any sub stacks. Please feel free to do so here before we dive into Jay Powell's pressure. So we've got about 10 minutes here. Let's go ahead and start with Lynn here. Do you have any final thoughts and your thoughts on what 2023 holds for us? Uh, yeah, so I think that um, until we see evidence to the contrary, we have to continue to assume some degree of economic deceleration, right? So we basically, I think the current trends are going to persist into the first half of 2023, which is, you know, declining manufacturing output, declining freight usage, um, just overall uh, suppression um, of demand to some extent in the West. Uh, we'll see to what extent China reopens. That's kind of the wild card because that's more of a political variable rather than a financial variable so it's based on a number of human decisions and therefore it's you know it's, it's hard to predict um so that can obviously change the time frame of things um but i think most things point to ongoing deceleration but as we discussed a number of times on this on this panel maybe not the type of sharp recession that that people think and rather maybe more of a grindy um you know grinding a little bit higher in unemployment grinding higher uh in various kind of issues in the economy um, un until we reach some kind of a different regime, right? So I think that 2023 continues to be kind of the wild card, but then we look out longer into the 2024, 2025 environment. I think that's when we can start anticipating probably the next growth cycle and potentially another wave of inflation. If you look back at prior periods of, of say, U.S. inflation or, or European inflation, you know, the 70s, for example, had multiple separate waves of inflation, uh, the 1940s had multiple separate waves of inflation, and that's because in these environments, you always have some degree of pushback, right? So it could be the central bank uh, pushing back. It could be price and wage controls pushing back. These things vary over time, but there's always some sort of pushback. And so I think that we're, right now we're obviously in that environment of pushback, um, but I do think we're probably going to see more waves in the future um, that I think I think can materialize in, say, 2024 or thereafter. Thank you, Lynn. Do you have anything you got coming out you want to plug? Uh, people can check out lynnalden.com. That's where my, my public work is. I, I have a December newsletter coming out soon. It's public, um, so people can people can check that out. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, and thank you again for coming. Jim, I saw you unmuted there, so we'll go ahead and kick off to you next. Yeah, so Lynn kind of addressed this. Michael Cow kind of addressed this. I want to dive in. We've been doing a bit of work recently on, on kind of in, in secular inflationary periods kind of different vol that, that performs in different ways. And we actually have a paper or newsletter coming out that'll be coming out kind of at the end of the year here um, about that. So kind of look for that at chivolatility backslash news. But uh, I want to address it here kind of a little bit as it relates to equities. 
Um, you know, what we see in equities during inf secondary inflationary periods is you have those first order effects of inflation, right? Which just make assets broadly cheaper, right? Uh, it makes equities cheaper too. These are assets at the end of the day. If you have 10% inflation per year, uh, you know, fast forward uh, three, four years, equities are just a lot cheaper uh, given everything else being equal. But the second order effects overwhelm uh, those first order effects uh, historically. And those are, again, contractionary Fed policy drives less demand for assets broadly, right? There's just less money to chase investment. That reverse Tina effect, uh, I want to reemphasize that, right? Like uh, when interest rates were zero, all the money was driving to risk assets. Nobody, you're, you don't hear anybody talking about the Tina effect anymore because guess what? There's this whooshing sound of all the money flowing into bonds right now away from equities given, given that. Third, risk assets broadly have higher risk premium because there's less liquidity. If the Fed, if the, if the interest rates are higher, that just means it's harder to borrow, to provide liquidity in the marketplace. And that's what we're seeing, less liquidity in the market, more volatility broadly in the short term. That means higher risk premium. That means risk assets are less attractive. And then not to mention the more structural margin compression, higher discount rate. Those second order effects make equities and risk assets much, much less appealing uh, after what, what we've seen is a secular drive into those assets. So uh, during these periods, you see multiple contractions. So it really, again, it's not about the recession. It's not about the economy. It's about the market. They're two different things. And the worst thing that the market can see right now is, is continuing secular inflation. Um, you know, that would ultimately drive uh, much, much worse outcomes for equities than actually a, a some type of recession uh, or something along those lines. So I think that's that's critical to understand what that drives ultimately from a volatility perspective as Lynn and Michael suggested, is over longer periods, a, a, between, a push and pull between these first and second order effects that drives compressed volatility. Um, and as we saw, 14 years, 68 to, to 82, 14 years, think about that, the market went nowhere in nominal terms. <laughs> think about what that did to long-term vol, right? Uh, it's a massive long-term vol compressionary factor. That said, cyclically in the short term, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching this kind of second move phenomenon, like we, I kind of referred to. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, you're in the short term, you're really entering this this unbalanced boat where there's much more risk to downside vol. But in the context of an inflationary period where vol broadly, you know, you're likely to see a grind uh, over longer periods. So uh, I kind of that lines up a bit with some of what they're saying from other perspectives, but but something to watch there. Thank you much, Jim. And I know, Michael, you've got to get heading out here real quick. So please, Michael, go ahead and give your final thoughts here and anything you want to plug. First, I, I just want to say thanks for everybody's perspectives and thanks, Wales and Nicholas, for, uh, for having me. This has been great. I uh, apologize. I do have to leave in about five minutes. So uh, my parting thoughts are that I agree that this is going to be a long grinding bear. Um, I think that we are only in the second or third inning of said bear. And lest anybody think that I'm a perma bear, because I guess I've my my debut to Fintuit was only about two years ago, and I've essentially been been bearish for two years. Um, I, I should just let everybody know that you know I I too am a beneficiary of the liquidity lottery. Most of the big wins in my career have been on the long side, um, and you know I've been in the hedge fund space for 25 plus years, financial markets for 30. Um, I do think, though, that for the first time in my career that I have zero FOMO of missing the bottom uh, in this market. Um, the My biggest capital allocations over the last two or three months have been in three-month, six-month, and uh, one-year bills. So um, I'm, I'm very, very um, stingy with, with 
with uh, from the perspective of allocating uh, big dollars to risk assets right now. So that's that's where I'm at. Thank you, everybody. Thank you much, Michael, for coming, as always. We'll move over to Joseph here. Any last thoughts? Anything you got to plug before we head into J-Pal's presser? Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be on this panel with such bright minds. I always learn something when I'm on here. So what I think is, what, so I share the concern of many panelists that maybe we're in structural inflation, and that has tremendous impacts uh, for market pricing. That's just not there right now. So what I'm looking for next year is whether or not this really is a regime change and if it is, um, how the market is going to adapt to it. It's going to be a messy process, like many of you mentioned. So I'm actually on team steepening with Michael. And yes, it, it's not gone the way that we hoped it would be. But looking at uh, if we are right on this and looking at the supply and demand dynamics of the treasury market, I, I think that there could be big moves in rates coming next year with implication that's on currency. So that's what I'll be focusing on uh, for next year. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, as always, for coming, Joseph. Really great to have your feedback and input up here. Last, bear, last but not least by any means, anything you want to plug, anything you got to say before we close out into Jay Powell's presser? Um, no, I guess just as a maybe looking into next year, the only sort of general advice I'd have is like not be in a camp, like be data dependent, be uh, open-minded to, to the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, a lot of, if you were on team inflation, you were, beating your chest all year like it's important to, to think forward and not just get caught in sort of uh you know in a camp and and you know having some perspective around that so that's it's a general thought to to close it out but um again if you liked anything that i said here um please give me a follow on twitter or subscribe to my Substack, and you can hear more so thanks as always um for having me on the spaces guys it's been a lot of fun and as always thank you for coming